you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 24 as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke, nearing now the very end. Luke chapter 24, we're at verses 36 to 43. We're in a section now on the resurrection appearances of Jesus. On Friday, he was crucified. On Sunday morning, the tomb was empty, just as he promised. And over the last two weeks, Dr. Bruce has walked us through Luke's account of Jesus appearing to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. On Sunday afternoon, Jesus walked with two disciples. And he taught them about himself from the Old Testament, though they didn't recognize him at the time. And he broke bread with them, and then their eyes were opened, and they realized who he was, and he suddenly vanished from their sight. Now, tonight in Luke 24, verse 36, it's Sunday evening, and Jesus is going to appear now to his inner circle of disciples, the the 11 that now remain, although Thomas won't be there, so actually 10, but they're called the 11, and some others who've gathered here, Jesus bears witness to his resurrection by showing them himself, convincing them it's true, he's risen. But Jesus also is assuring them, he's assuring them of the blessings they have because of his death and resurrection. He wants them to know the benefits they have, the blessings they have, because he died and rose. And so he wants them to be assured of those benefits and that they belong to them. What benefits are these? Well, here, peace, joy, and assurance of his love. And I want to think about those three things with you as we consider the passage tonight. Luke chapter 24, let me invite you to pay attention now to God's authoritative word, beginning at verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. They were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I, myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Amen. This is God's word. May he cut our hearts by it. Let's look to him in prayer. And our Father in heaven, we ask that your word would be a light to our path. We pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we would know the glory of Christ and all his blessings and benefits. Strengthen us in him, we pray. And speak in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oliver Wendell Holmes, you may remember his name. He served 30 years as an associate justice of the Supreme Court, long time ago now. But he's among the most widely quoted justices. 
At one point in his life, Justice Holmes explained his choice of a career, saying, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. You can chuckle at that. Lest you be thought an undertaker yourself. Thank you. Before being convinced of his resurrection, I imagine Jesus' disciples had the look of at least what, if we don't know an undertaker, we imagine an undertaker would look like. Uh, Gloomy, long in the face, solemn, sad, depressed, or at least putting it on when he's doing his duty. Ill at ease, anxious perhaps about their futures, uncertain and fearful about their standing with God. I imagine this is how the disciples felt. And Jesus comes, and when he comes, he brings them peace, and they, bring, they have joy, and they have assurance. He changes everything. And so we want to think about those, and we want to ask ourselves, are we enjoying the benefits that come to his people because he died and he rose? Do you know this peace and joy and assurance? He wants them calm, so he speaks to them peace. He wants them convinced, so he brings them uh, the truth of the resurrection, so they'll have joy in being convinced, and he wants them confident in the assurance of his love for them. I want to highlight those three things. In the first place, I want you to think about how they must have felt before he appeared. Just remember the story that on Thursday night, their leader and teacher, whom they loved, was arrested, and they fled the scene. Overnight, he's tortured. They had tucked themselves safely away, except Peter, except Peter denied knowing him to his face on multiple occasions. On Friday afternoon, then, Jesus is executed in a manner the Romans found most painful and the Jews found most humiliating. Stripped naked, nailed to a tree, hung before a crowd, mocked and spat upon. Then a Jewish man who had secretly loved Jesus, but he wasn't one of these inner circle disciples. He takes Jesus down off the cross with permission of Pilate, going boldly, asking for it. Puts him in his own tomb, the tomb of a rich man, makes sure he gets a decent burial. And the female disciples, you remember, were there. The women had hung around, waiting, watching Jesus die, and then following him to the tomb. And they had even followed up, preparing to make sure he got all the burial items and spices attached. But the men weren't there. Saturday passes. They're in mourning, for sure. They grieve. But they're also living in fear. What if the government that arrested and killed Jesus, our leader, decides they need to wipe us all out? We're his followers. And no doubt they are living as well with a sense of regret and a sense of shame of knowing they didn't help Jesus or stand for Jesus. They're certainly painfully aware of their failures in friendship at minimum. And now it's Sunday evening, and they've gathered together. They're hiding out probably in the upper room. They've used it before. It was large. They'll be there again later in the story. They're behind closed doors. The Apostle John tells you the doors are locked. They're fearful. They're hiding. And they've heard the report that the women went to the tomb and found it empty. 
fact, they've heard the report that an angel told them he's not here because he's risen. Peter, though Luke doesn't tell you that story, Peter has actually run to the tomb with John and seen that it was empty. And Peter himself, though Luke doesn't tell you this, the other gospel writers do, Peter had actually met the risen Lord. And so had Mary. And Mary had come back with a report of this. And Peter had come back with a report of this. And now, in the last passage Dr. Bruce preached on, Cleopas and his wife, and a, or a companion, they had been walking on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus had appeared to them, and eaten bread with them. But still, they haven't seen him, not the whole of the group. They haven't heard from him, not the eleven. What is he going to say to us, you can imagine them saying to themselves? Yeah, he was nice to Mary. That's her report. But you know, she had the decency to hang around when he was hung on the cross and then to go and seek to see that he was buried in a decent way. I mean, her loyalty and love for him was unquestioned. Sure, Jesus was nice to her. Well, he met Peter, and Peter may have given them a good report, but we all know they might have said to themselves that Peter has a habit of blurting anything out of his mouth that comes to mind, and Jesus had a habit of saying, that's wrong, Peter. That's not true, Peter. You might think, some of them would think, I don't know if I can trust what Peter is telling me. And in his most significant appearance to date, there's the appearance to Cleopas and this other, but he's not one of the inner circle. He's not, the, he's not the closest companions. So they might have begun to ask themselves, has Jesus cast us off? If indeed he is alive, if, is he going to find you know, disciples who aren't chumps like us? And if he does appear to us, is he going to come in anger? What will his first words be? You lousy, stinking, faithless man. I told you all this was going to happen and you didn't believe me? And then you abandoned me, my friends, in my greatest hour of need? Can you imagine how they must have felt? Perhaps you can. Listen, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian and we're, we're glad that you're here, we hope that you're, you feel treated respectfully. We want to deal with the story of Jesus faithfully. Surely you can understand how these disciples must have felt. Though perhaps you have no love in your heart for Jesus, and though they did seemingly, surely you know how troubled their conscience must have been about this great failure of friendship. Maybe you've experienced that kind of failure. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of somebody who lets you down. Or maybe you know yourself to be the one who's let another down and simply didn't show up. And you know how the conscience convicts. You know how troubled in heart. You know how condemned you feel. Feelings of shame or sorrow. And if you're a Christian here, you know a bit about what these disciples were feeling. You yourself have done much the same as them. You have promised loyalty and steadfastness in love to Jesus. You've told yourself, I'm going to follow him, and I'll do it faithfully. And time and again, you've been disloyal, you've gotten distracted, you've fallen on your face, and your conscience condemns you. And so with them, we might ask, will he condemn us? Will he berate us? Will he heap mockery and scorn on our heads? Or will he just simply say, I'm looking elsewhere for followers 
who are better than you. And now here is Jesus. He is suddenly in the locked room. And what are the first words out of his mouth? Peace to you. Peace. I come in peace. I want you to have and to be at peace, he says to them. I'm not here to shout at you. I'm not here to throw your sin in your face. I forgive you, is what Jesus is saying to them. At a minimum, I forgive you. Rest easy. And that is the kind of forgiving Savior you and I have in Jesus. He knows everything there is to know about us and about our heart, about our failures. He knows everything in us that, that, that we say ought to condemn us. And he says, peace to you. He is, dear friends, far more willing to forgive us our sins than we are willing even to ask him to forgive. <laughs> He's more ready to pardon than we're willing to even acknowledge we need his pardon. For you who believe in him, the Apostle Paul reminds you in Romans 5 verse 1 that therefore since we've been, we have been already justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is not uh, something, peace with God is not something that we have to fight for, but it is something that we have been given. It is not uncertain It is not future. It is God's gift of grace in Jesus. And you are at and have peace with God through the Lord Jesus. He is no longer at war with you. He is not standing against you. He is for you always and forever. This is the meaning of the death of Christ for your sins. He takes them away and his resurrection for your justification. Jesus has made it so. And so this is what can make you calm when your heart or your world or your Christian walk is in turmoil. We have peace from our sorrow and grief because Jesus isn't dead after all. He's risen. And we have peace with God because all our sins are forgiven through the cross where Jesus died. That's the first thing I want you to see. The second that he came to bring and that they experienced was joy in the resurrection. It's not joy that they had until they were convinced of the resurrection, but it's joy he came to bring them and he wanted to convince them. Their peace was not immediate, of course. They were startled, verse 37, and they were frightened. They thought they saw a spirit, right? Uh, Jesus here, they imagined perhaps was a ghost, And they were troubled, it says. He knows that they're troubled in heart. And they're doubting. And he asks them, why are you troubled? Why are you doubting? Now, why were they? Because he's suddenly standing there in the midst of them. And they're behind a locked door. And they don't know exactly what it is for sure that they're seeing. How had he gotten in? They needed to know he was real and that he was human. He was flesh and bone. So what does Jesus Jesus do? Of course, he convinces them. How does he convince them? Well, verse 39, he says, see my hands and my feet. (laughs) Touch me and see. Lay hands on me. Grab me. Hold me. Hug me. 
right? See for yourself, I'm alive. It's I, myself. You know me, guys. This is what he says to them. He reasons with them. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He reasons with them about it. They know that. Spirits are non-physical in that sense. And he shows them the body parts that evidently bore the marks of crucifixion, his hands and his feet. It seems that's why he shows them those particular body parts, the ones that would be most accessible, seeing as how he's risen and clothed. And it seems like he's showing them on the one hand that he's healed up. I'm alive, guys. I'm risen from the dead. And yet, perhaps, uh, bearing some mark yet uh, that... He was, in fact, crucified and now risen. As Revelation says, the Apostle John in a vision looks into heaven and he sees a lamb there looking as though he had been slain. Even in the heavenly throne room, the lamb bears the marks of having been killed, so to speak. And so he says, look at my hands, look at my feet. It's I myself, touch me and see a ghost under the flesh and bones. Bones, you see that I have. And still they are hesitant. It says not believing because it seemed too joyful, too good to be true. So again, wanting to convince them, wanting them to believe he's not a ghost, he asks for food. Do you have something to eat? Verse 41. And we're told that they give him some broiled fish. Broiled there simply means cooked. It was ready to eat. It was good to go. They give him some fish, and they all watch as he puts it in his mouth. You can imagine they watch him chew and swallow. Ghosts, spirits, disembodied beings don't do such things. This is no optical illusion. And by the way, we might just as an aside note that the risen Lord Jesus ate a killed animal. A fish after the resurrection. And so you're welcome to be a vegetarian. You're welcome to choose to be, you really are. And you can make all kinds of arguments about why that might be healthy for you or good for you or desirable. It's just what you want. What you're not able to do is build a Christian argument for why Christians must choose vegetarianism. Jesus ate fish post resurrection. But anyway, that's. Not entirely the point of the passage, you understand. (laughs) He has a real human body, flesh, bones, food consumption. It's pretty common stuff. And yet, evidently, very uncommon. A body that can appear and disappear wherever he pleases. Back at verse 31, the story from before, he vanished from their sight. We don't know exactly how or what. The Bible's not trying to satisfy our curiosity. And here he suddenly is standing in a locked room with them. How does he do that? Well, frankly, we don't know. We could speculate. We might speculate and be wrong. Some have wanted to say Jesus in his resurrected body could pass through walls and locked doors. That may be the case. If it's the case, I think it's more likely something uh, not like Star Trek where, you know, you get beamed from one place to the next to become less material and then reestablished as material. But if you think of it this way, perhaps 
simply speculating here, folks, that he's actually more substantial and not less substantial than all the other material around him, much like a steel bar passes through water and the water simply moves out of its way and then recollects behind. He's certainly more and not less substantial. He's risen and he's real and he just appeared. I may be wildly wrong on how he appeared, but he's there. And they are befuddled, they are confused, they're filled with joy, but they disbelieve for joy. What's happening here? Well, it's too good to be true, it seems like. He's not a ghost, he's not a hallucination, he's not risen in our hearts. No, he's risen in reality, bodily. And that bodily resurrection, friends, is a promise of ours if we believe in him. And I want to say, if you find it difficult to believe in the resurrection, don't you, the resurrection, don't you at least long for it to be true? Don't you at least want it to be true that he rose from the dead? Wouldn't it be great if it is true that he's risen and his resurrection is a promise of our resurrection? Wouldn't you want that? Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be fantastic that you could live forever in a body, in a new heavens, in a new earth, in a perfect world? And enjoy in the body all the good things that God has made. We will rise bodily, the Bible says. In fact, all will rise bodily. The book of Daniel makes it clear that some will rise to everlasting life with a body like Jesus' body. But that some will rise yet to everlasting shame and contempt. But Jesus has better things in store for his disciples. And it brings them joy. You know Tolkien's story, The Return of the King, in the days following when the ring had finally been tossed into Mount Doom and destroyed. Sam wakes up from sleep and he's surprised to be alive and he's surprised to see Gandalf. And he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought, I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue, says Sam? What happened to the world? And Gandalf says, a great shadow has departed. And then he laughed. And the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the sound of pure merriment for days upon days without count. Well, that's the way it was for these disciples, I think. And they are filled with joy in the hope that they have now, convinced as they are of the resurrection of Jesus and the hope of our coming resurrection on account of his resurrection brings true joy even in the midst of physical suffering whatever pains we experience in our earthly bodies whatever weaknesses whatever disease is whatever disabilities we might have God will make everything perfect when we rise again and there will be no more sadness and no more pain and only perfect health and joy in his presence forevermore. And they caught a taste of that joy, have you? 
And the last thing is this. He wants them confident in the assurance of his faithful love because they have been unfaithful. But despite their unfaithfulness, he remains faithful to them. They've heard the word of peace. They've touched his resurrected body. They're filled with joy. But notice their emotions haven't been working quite properly. In the presence of their living Savior and Lord, they're kind of screwed up internally. He tells them, peace be to you. And they're suddenly startled and frightened. (laughs) They're not responding obediently with the proper emotions. He shows them his resurrected body and they're filled with joy, yet they disbelieve for joy. They're astonished and overcome with emotion that they can't quite believe it's real. So he had to do the thing with the fish. (laughs) Maybe you've seen one of these videos of servicemen or women returning to their families having served overseas and it's totally unexpected but the camera is rolling the soldier and marine or marine or airman or what have you is there but the wife or the kids or the mother they don't know it and then suddenly they see and what happens their eyes get huge their mouth opens they put their hand over their mouth you can see them mouthing no way right And they're filled with joy, but they're almost paralyzed by it, at least for a moment, until they go running and leaping into the arms of their loved one. I think that's the kind of thing they had here. They were disbelieving for joy. They believed, of course. But it was so incredible and astounding. And Jesus here wants, in the midst of all of that, to assure them that though they have been unfaithful and disbelieving, he loves them. And he loves them with a steadfast, immovable, unbreakable love. And so he eats with them. I think he's doing more than just proving he's not a ghost. Though certainly he was doing that. It's interesting though, when Peter preaches at the home of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verse 41 and following, he's speaking to Cornelius and his servants and his friends and telling them about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus And and he refers to this incident, and he says, Jesus, quote, was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. What's the significance of that? Not just a proof that he's risen, but having a meal with somebody declares peace and reconciliation especially if there's been alienation it restores and it brings assurances with it that's the way meals often work and in that day and in that place and in the Middle East even today and in some cultures it does it assures you of the love and the care and the loyalty of the person you're eating with in some cultures like the ancient Middle East it's a bond that helps solidify and bring reassurance of that There are helpful examples of this in a variety of places. I've been told this one by others. Some of you have heard it too. In 1688, I may have told you this some time ago, William of Orange and Mary, his wife, came to the throne of Britain and they replaced the Stuart monarchy. The Stuarts were from Scotland and though the Stuarts were very unpopular monarchs, they were the monarchs and uh, because many of the people in the northwest highlands of Scotland were Catholics and the Stuarts had very Catholic sympathies, the Stuarts were very popular among the clans. So when William and Mary came to the throne, first in England and then in Scotland, though they were welcomed by the vast majority of even the Protestants, there were clans in the highlands 
who were not excited about them coming to the throne. And so one of the things that was done is that in Scotland, the House of Orange sent out pledges that heads and chiefs of families and tribes had to sign, which basically said, we're going to be loyal. We're not going to rebel. You're our king. You're the lawful king. We get it. And so all the clan chieftains were either required to come to Inverness or to Edinburgh to turn in the signed document by a certain date. And there were several clan chieftains who didn't do it, and one of those clans was the McDonald's of Glencoe. They were a small, as it is said, motley, rather unpopular clan known for cattle thieving from their neighbors, and they lived in the valley of the beautiful Glencoe. And their clan chieftain, he got on his horse dutifully and took his, his document to Inverness, believing that's where he ought to be. And he arrived the day before it was due in Inverness. And the leaders in Inverness said, no, you need to go to Edinburgh. And so he went off to Edinburgh, but he arrived days late. And they decided that they would make an example of the McDonald's so that all the other tribes and uh, people would know that You obey the king when the king tells you what to do. And so it was decided uh, that um, they should be made an example of. And some Campbells from Argyle were sent with a regiment to Glencoe in the dead of winter, a month or so later, with the assignment of simply slaughtering the McDonald's in Glencoe. This was going to be a message to everybody. Don't mess with the king. And so the army regiment from Argyle that was given the job of slaughtering all the McDonald's showed up in the Valley of Glencoe in the middle of a driving snowstorm, and they bumped into some of the Glencoe's, uh, the McDonald's in Glencoe, who promptly invited them into their homes and, and killed the fatted calf, uh, fed them, gave them the best wine, gave them the best food, sheltered and protected them, and slept them for three days in their homes. Until in the middle of the night, the regiment awoke and went about the task of simply slaughtering their hosts. Some of the women and the children escaped in the snow over to the next mountains where they lived and survived to tell the tale. Most of the men were slaughtered by the regiment of soldiers. Of course, as we all can imagine, the outrage was enormous all over Scotland. And in fact, it is said that until recently, some 300 plus years later, if your name was Campbell, you couldn't get a bed at an inn in the highlands of Scotland. That's how despised your family name was. And the terrible wickedness of the deed was that they had accepted hospitality. They had accepted highlands hospitality. They had pulled up their knees under the table of these hosts who had feasted them. And then, in a breach of honor and highland hospitality, had done this terrible thing. And so you get a sense of how important the idea of eating a meal together is. How it creates a kind of bond that should not be transgressed. Now just reflect for a moment. The last time we saw these disciples eating, when was it? I'm sure they had eaten since. The last time they ate with Jesus was the Last Supper, at which they had promised their loyalty. We will never 
turn away from you, Jesus. We will stand with you, though death should come. But they did flee from him, and he died, and then he rose, and then he came back to them, and what did he do? He pulled up a chair at the table, and he ate with them. And what he was saying is this, I have never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love for you, my dear unfaithful disciples. Be assured of my love for you. And you be likewise assured. Father, we bless you that Jesus is a great Savior, kind, generous, warm-hearted, welcoming, giving and forgiving. And we pray that we would know the peace and the joy and the love of Christ and be rooted and grounded and established and confident in it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing and give thanks.